You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 11. And man, oh man, do I have some good news for you today. Um, this text we've got before us, well, I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to stay within the rails this morning, but I get excited when I read about what we're going to read about today. While you're finding your place, I want to do a little bit better job of uh, keeping you informed of all that God's doing in our congregation because each one of you have a part in it. Whether you are serving in these ministries, whether you're giving financially, whatever it is you're doing, you're part of this because we're a family. Um, it seems like no matter what we do every Christmas season or December, it seems like a whole lot of things end up happening on the same weekend. And, and trust me, we've tried to spread that out, but, you know, it's just that when the Lord puts ministries in our path, we're going to do them no matter what the schedule looks like. So yesterday, uh, we had a lot going on. We got a lot going on today, and it's all really awesome things that the Lord is doing. So first, I go over to the gym. I go over to the gym. I walk over to the gym. And there is a sea, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating here, there is a sea of children dribbling basketballs, doing evaluations as they get ready to start their season with our church. And Joey Waddell and Brittany have put together an incredible team over there, and I was just blown away at what God was doing over there, and I'm very thankful for their leadership and for what they've been able to do with that. And I'm telling you, we're going to have an incredible Incredible basketball season this year. Second thing that was happening yesterday is our foster families. This church uh, intentionally uh, invests in our foster family organization. And we had a bunch of our foster families here yesterday. Fed them a good lunch. Uh, you provided for them a, a box of food uh, to be able to take home with them and help them with their grocery bills, as, as you know how high that is. And we just had a tremendous time. And, and yesterday what I saw, not only over here with foster families, but over there in the gym, and there were other things happening. There were small groups that were meeting, having Christmas dinners and family get-togethers. And what I saw was this church being intentional, connecting people, and setting forth ministries that have as their goal to connect people to the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. And, and that excites me. And uh, it doesn't matter what the schedule is. It doesn't matter you know, if sometimes it gets a little difficult to figure it all out, uh, this is about him and him alone. And I'm thankful for all of those who are uh, investing in all these different ministries that are happening. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul speaking. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one, no one will ever be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild, rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor or a sinner. For through the law, I died the law, so that I might live to God. If you underline in your Bible or highlight, I would love for you to underline that we might live to God. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, we are thankful to be able to have a copy of your inspired word. We are thankful, Father, to be able to gather together this morning without the threat of persecution, 
without the threat of being thrown in jail, without the threat of, of something happening to our family or, or losing our job or our income, that we are free to gather here this morning. And, Father, we are deeply grateful for that gift. And so, Father, we ask that you guide us in your word this morning. And, and Father, what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first to the churches of Galatia, but also to us, Father, it's powerful. There is freedom found in these words. So, Father, help us to understand it, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers also. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We titled, or I titled this sermon series, Sola Fide. It's a Latin term that means in faith alone. And, and that flows out of the ministry and the stand that a guy by the name of Martin Luther took well, all the way back on October 31st, 1517, there are five solas, and we'll talk about some of the others later, but the, the letter to the church at Galatia is about faith alone is what brings about transformation in our life. And in 1517, Martin Luther, he'd been wrestling for a while about what the Catholic church was teaching. And he sits down and he, and he walks through Scripture and he comes to a conclusion that is the exact opposite of what the powerhouse church of the day was saying. And that is that it is not by works that brings you into a right relationship with God. Exactly what Paul is saying to these churches of Galatia. And so Martin Luther decides that it is time for him to draw a line in the sand. That he, he could no longer accept the teachings of the Catholic church that said that it's by works. There was one particular key issue that really, I think, just really got under Martin Luther's skin. And it was the idea of what the church was teaching at that time that, that you, could, you could buy your way into heaven. That if you had enough money and you gave what was called indulgences, which was the idea that you gave money to the Catholic church on behalf of your salvation or someone else, that that, that would guarantee you that the church would even give you a, a written guarantee that if you gave enough money, you would cross from death unto life. And that just really bothered Martin Luther. So he writes this 95 theses and he and he goes to the the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he, he nails it to the door to let everyone know where he stood. And he, and he was not the only one. But at this time, he's the one who steps forward and says, I can no longer deny the clear teaching of Scripture and accept the opinion of men. Four years later, He's going to brought, be brought before a communal, a, a gathering of, of the powerhouse leaders of the Catholic Church. And the, the point of this meeting is, is to force Martin Luther to recant. It's called, if you look it up, it's called, it's going to look like it says, the diet of worms. But actually in German it's worms. And it's not that they're eating worms. It's not like they're eating like worms, obviously. It's a meeting. It's a gathering. And so the, the powerhouse leaders of the, the Catholic Church of the day are there. And if they stand Martin Luther up and, and Pope Leo X had already issued what was called a papal bull, which declared Martin Luther to be a heretic. And, and to be a heretic against the Catholic Church could put you in a very, very precarious situation, and Martin Luther knew it. But Martin Luther was not willing to compromise the teaching of Scripture for his own comfort. So they bring him before this tribunal and they're going to force him to recant. And recant means that he's going to simply say to them, okay, 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 I relent. I am no longer going to teach anything in opposition to the Pope or the Catholic Church and, and all those things that I've said back there and all the things that I've written down, you can throw them away and I, I deny them all and I, I'm going to get back in line with what you're teaching and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to let go of all the stuff that I've been holding on to. That's what they're expecting him, pressuring him to do. I want you to hear what he said now. I wish I could speak German, but I can't. So I'm going to tell you this in English. He's standing before this tribunal. His life is on the line here, and he knows it. And this is what he says. Quote, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. He says, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, 
and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And in that moment, Martin Luther looks at this tribunal of theologians and powerful people, and he draws a line in the sand, and he says, here I stand, and I can move no further. Do what you will. Put me to death. Torture me, whatever you want to do, but I cannot move from this place. Let me ask you a question. Have you defined that in your life? Do you know what your non-negotiables are when it comes to your faith? If you've put your faith in Jesus, what are your non-negotiables? What are the things, where, where, where is the line in the sand that you have drawn for you and your family to say, here we stand and we will not move one centimeter from this place? Have you defined that? You're going to need to because the culture, the pressure, the social media, it is, it is trying to get you to recant that which you know to be true. Teenagers, young people, college students, you know exactly what I'm saying. You feel the pressure. You know what it is. You've been, you're going through final exams. You're, you're dealing through the, the last of the semester stuff and the pressure that is on you to keep your Christianity quiet to keep it hidden. You know, you know that pressure well. Down through church history, there have been many men and women who've taken a stand and lost their life for it. Drew a line in the set and said, here I will stand, I will move no further. And as we've been looking at this letter to the churches at Galatia, we see Paul taking a stand that is exactly what Martin Luther took a stand on in 1517 about what it means, what justification means, what it means, well, to be right with God. And how does that happen? But not only has Paul took a stand, but, but Peter has taken a stand. Peter, if you go back to Acts 10, you, you can read this on your own, but there's an instance where Peter is really wrestling with this whole idea of of the gospel going to the Gentiles, Gentile meaning non-Jewish people. Peter was really wrestling with the idea that, that what Jesus did by dying on the cross and resurrected resurrecting was more than just something for Jewish people, that, that, that God actually loves and is pursuing the Gentiles. Now, for a Jewish person, as Peter was, that was hard for him. It was hard for Paul. There's this instance in Acts 10 where God is going to put Peter in a position where he has to, is forced to consider that the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. And God is going to send Peter to the house of Cornelius, who's a Gentile. But before he does, God gives this vision to Peter, and this, this, this sheet comes down, and it happens like four times, and on this sheet is all kinds of, of, of unclean animals. And, and God says to Peter, Peter, rise and eat. Well, Peter being a Jew, he's like, I, I can't eat that. There's no way I can eat. It's unclean. And God was illustrating for Peter that Peter shouldn't call something unclean that God has declared clean. In other words, Peter, don't think for a moment that the gospel of grace is just for the Jewish people. No, it is for the world. So Peter realizes that he's, he's erring, he's wrong, and he goes to the house of Cornelius and he shares the gospel and the entire family comes to faith in Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit just like he did and just like the church in Jerusalem is and Peter for the first time is confronted with the reality that the gospel is for more than just the Jewish person, the person who is descended from Abraham. They see it happening in Samaria. They see it happening in Judea. And now Paul has taken it to Asia Minor. And so Peter has confessed that the gospel is for the nations, not just for the Jews. Paul has confessed that the gospel is for the nation, not just for the Jews. Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they all agree that, and even Peter says, why would we require the Gentiles to follow the law when we couldn't even follow it ourselves? So we have agreement here that Christianity is not some kind of sect of Judaism. God is doing something new and beautiful and amazing, and yes, even among the Gentiles. 
But there's a question that's going to get raised here that we have to wrestle with. If we have said multiple times, Paul has said multiple times, he's going to say it again today, that there is no work that you can do to impress God. There, 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 there is no thing that you can do by which God is going to go, wow, you are so good, you are so holy because of those things you're doing, then by all means, you, you, are, you are welcomed into heaven. You are, by all means, you're, you're one of mine. Paul says unequivocally that that is impossible. But this begs a question now. So if, if there's no work of the law that I can do to, to impress God, then how in the world am I ever going to be able to please him? So we have 16, 613 laws, and Paul said that he kept those laws, and even that wasn't good enough. Peter raised as a Jew, keeping the law, and God says to him it wasn't enough. Then what about you and I? How in the world are we ever going to be able to please God? Well, there's three things that Paul's going to point out to us, three pictures that Paul's going to give us in this text that's going to help clear that up. Let's start in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why, why did Peter, why was there this tension between Paul and Peter? Well, Paul tells us, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, so Peter makes the trip up to Antioch. Now, Antioch is the base of operations for Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, this is way north of Jerusalem. It's up here right in the corner. If you look at your Bible maps, it's kind of in a corner. And then to the, to the left on the map is all of Asia Minor. So Paul would operate out of Antioch in his missionary journeys to Asia Minor and even all the way over to Rome. So Peter makes the trip from Jerusalem all the way up to Antioch. Now, the church at Antioch is predominantly Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. So when Peter gets there, because Peter has already confessed that God is working among the Gentiles, Peter has already confessed that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the Sabbath holy. They don't have to keep the law. Paul, Peter has already confessed that. So when he gets to Antioch, you know what he does? Well, he begins to fellowship with the Gentile believers there. Now, when you look at that, you think, in our context, our uh, American culture, well, Peter just had a meal with some Gentiles. What's the big deal? Well, in their culture, it was a huge deal because Peter had been taught his whole life as a Jew, you do not have table fellowship with Gentiles. Table fellowship meaning that not only are we going to have a meal together, but in having a meal together, I am affirming you that I am in agreement with you that, that we have a relationship with one another and that we're building that. That's, that's what table fellowship meant. It was more than just getting together and having a meal. This, this was huge. And Peter had been told his whole life, you don't have, as a Jewish man, you do not have a meal. You don't sit down to table fellowship with Gentiles. If you remember during Jesus' ministry, what, what often would get the religious rulers inflamed when they saw Jesus in the house of a sinner? Zacchaeus, hanging around with Matthew, the tax collector, this woman with the issue of blood. Even that, even that got on the nerves of the disciples themselves. So, so Jesus was condemned for it, although he was modeling what the church was going to look like. Peter has said the Gentiles are being reached with the gospel. So when he goes to Antioch, he just sits down and has a meal with them. He's fellowshipping with them. There's joy. There's peace. There's camaraderie. There's unity. And that is what happens. A delegation from James, the circumcision party, show up. Who are they? Well, they're the ones who are saying that the gospel is not enough, that you, you must keep the law if you're going to be right with God. So they show up in Antioch. And notice what Peter does. Peter, because he fears them, he draws back, he separates himself from the Gentiles, and now he's only hanging out with those who are adding the law to the gospel. Now, why did he do that? Because of fear. And this leads us to the first picture of how we please God. Trust me when I tell you, and hear me clearly, it doesn't matter if you're 80 or 8. If you make your life goal, if your life goal is to please people, you will never find joy or peace in your life. Let me say that again. 
If your life is about trying to please other people, if, if the opinions of other people is what rules your life, you will never find the peace that is described in the New Testament ever. So the point being, the way we please God is, first of all, God must be bigger than every other person in our life. God must be the priority. God, God must be his opinion about us, what he says about us, his love for us, his pursuit of us, his calling in our life, the giftings that he's given us. Those things matter more than the opinion of that person on your social media account who says something ugly about you. Far too many believers are living their life solely off the opinions of other people. And then you wonder, why in the world am I not finding this joy that is talked about in the Bible? It's because you are enslaved, not to God, but to other people. Other people have become very big in your life. They have actually become an idol in your life. Social media has made this astronomically worse. Because now we have all these people online that we don't even know who are, who are very articulate in their, well, in their uh, communication with you, either in your inbox or on some post you made, and, and honestly, you read what they say about something you posted, and your whole day is wrecked because of that person's opinion about some Bible verse you posted. You worry about it, you fret about it, you lose sleep about it, you're not eating, you're mad at your husband, you're mad at your wife. Your whole day is wrecked because of some person you don't even know has an opinion about you. Can I just, can I just speak to that for just a moment? There is no way. There is no way you're ever going to be able to live your life in freedom and peace with that much, giving that much control to somebody else. Those people, they have an agenda. I don't know what it is. I really don't care. But the reality is they're wanting you to get in line. They're, they're, they're wanting you to, to let go of your convictions and simply get in line with everyone else who's walking the wide path. It requires nothing of you. And one post on your social media account ruins your day. One email, somebody's opinion, they don't like you, they're upset with you, they may not even know you, but it wrecks you. That's because you've allowed people way too much priority in your life. There is no way to please God and please people. There is no way to please God and please people. When I first started in ministry, back in 2005, I tried my best to please church people. You want to know how that went? Not too good. I had to come to the place to say, okay, what are my convictions? Where do I stand? Where will I not move from? In the areas that, that I can, there's flexibility by all means, but, but in, in these doctrinal theological convictions of mine, I cannot move from here. But pleasing people almost drove me insane. Because the fact is, you can't please people. You know it to be true. The only way, the only way that you're ever going to be able to please God is when God becomes very big in your life, much bigger than all those other people who are tearing you down. Where can you find confidence in Christ alone? Where, where, where can you find courage in Christ alone? Where, 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 can you, where can you live out your faith in peace in Christ alone? It's not in the opinions of others because those opinions are changing every day, even multiple times a day, and it is insanity to try to live your life by the opinions of others. Peter was afraid of this Jewish delegation from James. So therefore, he immediately changes his behavior. Now, Peter knows the gospel. Peter has been changed by the gospel. He has right belief, but wrong actions. And in that moment, in that moment, the Gentiles meant nothing to him, and this delegation meant everything. And notice what Paul says about this, verse 14. You see, this is more than just racism. This, this is more than just hypocrisy. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, you may be of the viewpoint, and I hope to reverse this. You may be of the viewpoint that the gospel only matters when it comes to the, the situation of someone who is lost 
and putting their faith in Jesus and being saved, that the gospel is just about that moment of salvation. If, if that's what you believe about the gospel, that's not what the New Testament teaches. The gospel, yes, is about coming from death and the life, but the gospel is also about the empowerment to live out what God has called us to. It's, it's the day-to-day -day walking with Jesus. The gospel is just as important in that as it was the day you put your faith in Jesus and came out of darkness. So Paul looks at this situation. He says, this is not gospel. How can he say that? Because the gospel says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Just last week in chapter uh, 2, verse 6, he says, Paul says, God shows no partiality. Just because you're in the line of Abraham doesn't make you some kind of better person than the Gentile. That's what Peter and Paul and all these guys are struggling with. God shows no partiality. That the gospel itself says that, that all are lost, all are broken. We're all born into that. And the pathway into freedom is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, inspired through the scriptures to tell us that it's the gospel itself that not only changes our life, but continues to change our life as we walk with Jesus. That's the gospel. Paul says, they were not living in the truth of the gospel. So when people are bigger in your life, you will never be able to please God. When the opinions of people matter more than what God says about you, you will never be able to please him. You'll never be able to worship him. You'll never be able to, to live out your purpose. Notice what else Paul says, verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, Paul, almost kind of like tongue-in-cheek here, says, oh, those Gentile sinners. That's what Paul believed for most of his life. But Paul also has already written and will write in Romans that all have fallen short. Verse 16, he says, yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to say that same statement. He's going to kind of do some circular reasoning here in these verses, as he often does. And in essence, what he's saying is that no work will ever be able to make you right with God. And he uses this term, justification. Now, th this is a, a fancy theological term, but it is vastly important. And I think it's in this term and understanding this term where we find incredibly, incredible freedom in Christ. The idea of justification is this, that at the moment, a single moment in time, when you came to that place where you realized that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, that, the, that God opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel, and you confess your sins, and you put your faith in Jesus, in that moment, in the throne room of God, God does something incredible, amazing, beautiful. I don't have enough descriptors for it, but I hope you can get your arms around this. In heaven, God, in that moment, declares you to be righteous. What does that mean? So not only does God forgive you of your sins, but God in heaven declares you to be righteous, perfect, whole. He also adopts you as a son or a daughter. Now, now when he looks at you, he's, he's not looking at your works. He's not, he's not putting your works on a scale going, wow, they did just enough good stuff. I'm, I'm going to justify them. That's not it. You see, his focus, while it is on you, is on something far more profound. It's on what Jesus did on your behalf, that Jesus died where you should have. That Jesus lived a perfect life and fulfilled every aspect of the law perfectly every moment of his life, every day. As a matter of fact, the Christmas story is about the perfection in Jesus, the perfection of his conception and how that translates into a man who lived a perfect life, the only one to ever do it. He did that on your behalf. So when God declares you righteous, what he is saying is he is laying on us the righteousness of his son, knowing that we could never obtain it on our own. Now get this. As I stand before you today, as a follower of Jesus Christ, putting my faith in him when I was 16 years old, when God looks at me, he sees me as perfect. I know, I know what you're thinking. We know better, and I know you do, and my household knows better. But that doesn't matter at all. Because on the authority of God's word, God justified me and said that I was perfect and whole in that moment. Oh, that ought to get you excited, folks, because I'm not done yet. We're just getting started. 
justified, as though I had never sinned, as though I had never done anything wrong, as though I had never walked off the path. I am whole in God's eyes. There's nothing that I have to do to add to it. There's nothing any of you can ever take away from it. I am a blood-bought, born-again, son of God, justified, perfect, and whole in the eyes of my Father, and nothing will ever change it. That's good stuff. Okay, we're going we're gonna to preach here in just a minute. Now, justified by faith, there is freedom here, folks. There is peace here. There is beauty here. There is love here. And God did this on your behalf. You didn't do it. You didn't pull this off. Notice what he says. He says, yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in, G in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. You see what Paul does there? He goes round and round and round and he's saying the same thing over and over again. Works won't justify you, but Christ will. That's what he's saying. Faith will take you from death into life. Down through the history of the church, there have been statements of doctrine or, or faith called catechisms, and I, I love reading them uh, because I, I love to read people who can write really well and read what they've written. And uh, this particular one asked the question, how are you righteous before God? That's an important question because here's how I often hear it answered. Because I'll ask the question this, this way, uh, do you know who Jesus is and have you put your faith in him? And the question I often get in this area is, well, I'm a good person. So here's how they answer the question. How are you right before God? I'm a good person, which is exactly what Paul's talking about. And so the idea is, is they're, they're trusting in their works of being good to be able to impress God enough that on that day when they stand before him, God will say, my goodness, you did just 1% enough. Welcome in. That's what they're banking on. Listen to how this particular doctrinal statement answers this question. How are you righteous before God? I love how this is written. Quote, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and I have never kept any of them, and yet I am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now, pause right there for just a minute. I, want you, I, want, I, want, I really want to emphasize this. He says here that it's out of mere grace that God imputes to me. You know what that word means? It means that, that God places on me righteousness that I could have never obtained. Where did that righteousness come from? The very Son of God who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death that I should have died and resurrected three days later to affirm everything that he said was absolutely 100% true. That God places that righteousness on me. How's your works ever going to pull that off? He says that, this, this statement says that, this, that God is satisfied with me. Get this, that, that what has been imputed to me, what has been given to me through what Christ accomplished on my behalf, God is satisfied with me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is satisfied with you? It's much more than that, but let's just take that one thought for a moment. Nothing else you have to do? You hear the freedom in that? You hear the peace that's available in that? Not only has he imputed satisfaction, but righteousness, as though I have kept the entire law when I kept none of it. That's the gift of the gospel. He has also imputed me the holiness of Christ, that I've been made holy, that holy, holy, holy. We were, how, how are we going to be able, how are we, when all the nations, that song we just sung, when all the nations are gathered together in that final place and we are all crying together collectively to the one sitting, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, we're going to be able to sing holy, 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 holy. How are you going to be able to sing that song? Not because of some work you did. Oh, no. Your work didn't get you there. Your, your work didn't bring you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. There, there'll be nobody around that throne boasting about what they did. 
what we'll all be doing is falling on our face before the King of kings and Lord of lords who did it on our behalf and laid down his life for us. To read on, he says, he grants these to me, what? The satisfaction, righteousness, holy in Christ that's, that's been imputed to me. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin and as if myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. My goodness, why would you not? To be right with God, to be declared righteous. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. You need to get used to that because that's what God thinks about you. He loves you. There's nothing you got to do to get more of that love. There, there's nothing you got to do to get God on your team. He already is. He's already proved it when he allowed his son to die a horrible public death. But here's the thing, folks, and I don't know, I don't think I'm the only person in the room who struggles with this, so let's just put it on the table. So if I ask you, has God forgiven you? Yeah, God's forgiven me of my sins. Man, he has forgiven me of so much, and we can have that conversation about what all God has done and forgiven you in your life, but here's the question I've got for you. Have you forgiven yourself? That's where I struggle. I know what Scripture says about his forgiveness. I know what Scripture says about the blood of Christ that washes us clean. But there is something in me, and I know where it comes from. It comes out of the pit of hell. It's a lie that I too often believe that says to me, there's something else you got to do. That thing you did back there, well, God's forgiveness is not enough. Your, your repentance is not enough. you got to do something. What that's trying to do is move me from where I stand to where Satan would have me be in a works-based relationship with God. So if Romans 8, 1 is true, and it says that by faith you are now no longer condemned, if, if God in heaven has declared you as righteous, if God in heaven has satisfied with you, if, if God in heaven is not requiring any work of the law for you to be loved by him, then why are you still condemning yourself? Can we just believe the gospel? Can, can, can we just believe what Christ himself said? That if you've been forgiven, then you're forgiven? Move on. It's only the liar, Satan, who would love to keep you anchored to something in your past. Listen, if there's a voice of condemnation in your head, if there's a voice of condemnation in your head, it is not your father. Shut that down. Get in God's Word. Get some music in your earphones. Do something. But if there's a voice of condemnation that's taking you back to something in your past that God has set you free from, God doesn't even remember that anymore. Why are you? You will never share the gospel. You'll never find joy. You'll never find peace as long as you're living back there. And Satan knows that. Move on. So, these pictures of how we please God, number one, we can't be pleasing people and pleasing God at the same time. It's impossible. We've got to make God the priority. Number two, we are going to be justified by faith. It is the only way that we can please God is to be justified by faith, and that is the work that he does on our behalf. It starts with faith that you place in him, not just for salvation, but as we follow Jesus, which we're getting to next, day by day, putting our faith in Jesus. Notice what Paul says next. Pick it up in verse uh, 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? What in the world is Paul talking about? Paul is a master arguer. <laughs> he, um, oftentimes we'll be reading and you'll read some of Paul's writings and it's all of a sudden you go like, what is he talking about? Sometimes reading a different translation will help. Obviously commentators will help with this, but here's what Paul's saying. Paul's going to flip the argument. He said, okay, let's, let's go down this path. Let's add law back to the gospel. That's what's happening in the church of Galatia. Peter's struggling with it. Let's add the law back to the gospel. He says, well, first of all, if we do that, if we said we are seeking to be justified in Christ, but then all of a sudden we said, well, we got to be circumcised or we got to honor the Sabbath day, then here's what's happening. We are then making Christ a servant of sin. What does he mean? Well, if, if Christ himself said that salvation is in him alone, not the works of the law, if we add law back into that, we are saying that not only is Jesus a liar, but we're also saying that he's leading us into sin. Because if the law is the only thing that can deliver us, then Jesus, by lying to us, is causing us 
to sin. Now, Paul says, is that possible? He answers it, certainly not. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Rebuild what I've torn down. So what did Paul tear down in his life? Remember, he's in the Arabian desert. He has, he has seen the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. He is confronted with the reality that he's been wrong his whole life. And, and so now he's going to spend three years in training, getting his doctrine straight, and he tears down the system of the law, and in place of it, the gospel. And so what he does is he says, if I go back and I try to rebuild this system of the law, he says, I will find myself to be an actual sinner or transgressor. What does he mean by that? Well, now, when we get a little further in the letter, we're going to talk about that the law does have great value in our lives as followers of Jesus. We'll get to that later. But for now, what Paul says is that the law can never fix your broken heart. When I drive up 95 and there's those big uh, lit signs that say 60 miles an hour that everybody seems to be ignoring, to my, it scares me to death on these narrow roads. That sign that says 60 miles an hour is the speed limit, that sign can do nothing about my heart that makes the decision to drive 80 because I'm in a hurry and I'm that important. And, and that sign can do nothing about the, the danger that I'm putting everyone else in when I speed through those intersections and I speed through those narrow lanes. You see, the sign, all it can do, all the speed limit sign can do is point out what the law says. The law says that 60 and under, you're within the law. Above 60, you're outside of the law. And because of that, there can be serious repercussions. Paul knows that the law can never change your heart. Paul knows that the law will never make you right with God, no matter how much you try to keep it. So Paul says, if I go back and try to rebuild that, all that's going to do is lead me deeper in sin. That's what his life was before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Remember what he was doing? He's arresting innocent people simply for what they believe. Paul says, I can't go back down that path. So what's, 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 the, what's the idea? What's the plan? He gets to it, verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law. Now, this is where Paul begins to make an beautiful, incredibly, uh, oh, man, it's just a faceted statement here. Paul says he, he had to die to the law. That was all that was left. He couldn't keep it. There, there's no way he could keep it. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't keep all 613 of his laws. So what's the option here? How, how am I ever going to be able to please God? If keeping the law won't please God, it won't bring me in a right relationship with him, then, then what's left? Well, Paul says very simply, very clearly, I've got to die. You see, the speed limit sign on Highway 95 means nothing to the people in a cemetery. As a matter of fact, none of our laws written on the books mean anything to folks who have died. And that's where Paul's going. Paul says the only way that I could escape this was to die. Well, how, how, what does he mean? Is he going to take his own life? Is that what he's talking about? No. Listen to what he says. He says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And here's the third picture. First picture is we can't elevate people over God. God's got to be the priority. Number two, we've got to be justified by faith. And that is a work that God does on our behalf, made righteous. That's how we can please God. Third, we have got to live, be alive unto God. I told you to underline that. He says that I might live to God. I have to die to the law to be able to live to God. I have to die to the works to be able to honor him. I've got to be able to lay this down to be able to honor him. I can't have both. Far too many people who put their faith in Jesus later on in life begin to doubt whether they're actually born again or not. So what do they do? They add works back into the gospel equation. They, they have some kind of feeling, some kind of hair on the back of their neck that stands up one day and says, you're not saved. And they begin to believe it. And there's a condemning voice that tells them that they've never been changed. So they begin to listen to it. And the next thing you know, they go, well, if, if Jesus wasn't enough, then there's something I must do. So I need to go to church more. I'm going to sign up for that committee. I'm going to serve in the nursery. And I'm going to impress God so that I can tip it in my favor. And we go right back down to rebuilding that thing that we tore down. Listen to what Paul's antidote to this is. He says, you got to die. How do we die? Verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What in the world? I have been crucified with Christ? 
Get this. So the moment you put your faith in Jesus, not only did God declare you as being righteous, holy, he's satisfied with you, his wrath turns away from you, you are adopted as a son or daughter, but get this, on that day, you died. The only way the rebirth makes any sense, right, to be born again, the only way that born again makes any sense is if who I was before I came to faith in Christ, that no longer exists, that's gone. You are a new creation in Christ, born again, dead to the law, alive to God. You see, you were dead to God before. The Bible says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses. You had physical life, but spiritually dead. So there's nothing in that deadness that you could ever do to please God. So therefore, what has to happen is you have to, to die completely graveyard dead and then be resurrected to new life. And then and only then can you be alive to God. And then and only then can you please God. And then and only then can you find purpose and meaning in your life. And get this, it wasn't just that one time that you professed faith in Jesus. I have to die every single day. Because I have this problem. I don't know if you've got this. I like to make things about me. In my home, my marriage, my ministry, I love to make things about me. And so multiple times during the day, I have to say, Lord, help me to be crucified today. That my life is crucified, that I'm dead to the law. Notice what else Paul says here, because it's vitally important. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Well, then how is Paul going to live? He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see me on the stage, you see, you know who I am, but... My goal each and every day is to be alive unto God by which Christ has full control of my life, and I have none. For he is the priority and not me. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Notice this. It was faith that brought you from darkness into light, but it is also faith by which you are honoring Christ in your life day after day. You see, the gospel doesn't just apply to your salvation. The gospel applies to your everyday walk with Jesus. Every day we walk by faith. Every day our trust is in him. Every day it's a surrender of my life and a giving over to his. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Notice this, Paul, Paul says this. It's a simple thing, but I think it's so profound. He says, God loves me. Jesus loves me. Paul says, God loves me. There's a guy who gets it. That God loves you. That, 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 that Paul in all of his works, and all of his uh, climbing the ladder of popularity and power within Judaism, not one time did he ever say that God loved him. Only after he's died for the law and resurrected to new life in Christ that he can say confidently that Jesus loves him and gave himself for me. And then Paul closes this section out and he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God. How do you nullify? Or how do you, how do you render impotent or weak the grace of God? Let me tell you how you do that. You allow the opinions of people to dictate your life. That disables God's grace in your life. Allowing people to dictate your decisions and how you're going to live and what you're going to believe, that nullifies the grace of God in your life. Another way that you nullify the grace of God in your life is, is when you try to do works to impress God so that he will love you. That nullifies the grace of God in your life. After you've been born again, after you put your faith in him and you've been transformed, then beginning to try to live a life yet again of trying to impress God by your works, that nullifies the grace of God in your life. I'm amazed that um, how often we've been set free, uh, how often people have put their faith in Jesus, but they never, they spend their whole lifetime and never experienced the freedom that is to be found in Christ. It's almost like, we're in a prison cell. The door's been swung wide open, but we prefer the prison. There's a syndrome that you might have heard in the news. It's come up. It comes up ever so often. It's this idea of uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Um, in 1973, there was a, a guy who walked into a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, and he's going to rob this bank. And in the process of robbing the bank, he takes a whole bunch of hostages. 
And this thing drags out for like six days. And there's all kinds of law enforcement. The world's focused on this thing. And, and what was interesting was, what was interesting, uh, especially after the fact, was is that some of the people that were held captive inside by, these, by this guy who's obviously deranged and who's threatening to kill him at, at points along this, um, this robbery and this um, standoff, the victims that are inside that bank get to the place where they are more afraid of the police outside than they are the one who's taking them captive. And it's this idea of the Stockholm Syndrome where people who have been taken captive <clears throat> come to a place where they trust their captors more than the ones who are trying to free them. And, and so outside all these police and all these SWAT teams are trying to, to get these people out and there were opportunities for them to flee, but they didn't. They stayed in captivity because they were afraid to leave. And I have come to the conclusion that there's a whole lot of people in a whole lot of churches who are caught in spiritual Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome where they are caught in this prison of works when the door has been swung open by Jesus and there's nothing else to be done. It's all been done, but yet we sit and we fret in this prison because we choose to. All the while believing the lies of the evil one. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus' crucifixion, if his bloody death on a cross and his resurrection, if that wasn't enough, what do you think you have on the table that can make it enough? Jesus hung on a cross naked before people who hated his guts, spikes through his wrist and through his feet, calling out, God, forgive them for they knew not, know not what they do. God, I commit my spirit into your hands. Predicted by Isaiah the prophet in incredible detail. Ordained by God that his son would die publicly. All that we, so that we might be saved. Listen, let me ask you something. What do you have to add to the crucifixion of Jesus that can bring you into a right relationship with God? Do you know what the answer is? Absolutely nothing. And let me just say this. It is an offense to God. It is an offense to God to think for a moment you've got something to bring to the table that will impress him. I think that offends him. And I think in this moment of commitment this morning, we need to wrestle with that. So what does it look like? Daily surrender to Christ? Abandoning my works? And here's where it leads. Freedom, joy, and victorious living. Is that something you're looking for? Then quit trying to earn it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram.